You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 193, D.L. Mayfield and the Gift of Paying Attention. My friends, if this doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. Get ready. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Definitely, if you haven't had a chance to go support us over on Patreon, this might be a good time to go and do that. You can get access to new conversations earlier than everybody else if you support us on Patreon. So that's just patreon.com slash halfway there. Um, Today, our guest, I can't wait to bring this conversation to you. I have uh, been following our guest on Twitter for a little while. We interact once in a while. She is a writer, a podcaster who's trying to be a good neighbor. I thought that was a great line. And uh, her podcast is the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. And her new book is called The Myth of the American Dream. Uh, So apparently she's got a talent for provocative titles. We'll talk about that as well. Our guest is D.L. Mayfield. Danielle, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's good to talk to you finally. Um, How are you? So tell us a little bit about you and kind of what you're doing right now. And then uh, we'll go back into your story. Yeah, well, I have a book coming out in a month. So obviously I'm a writer and I do some freelance writing on the side. I um, have a degree in teaching English, speakers of other languages. And so... For the past decade or so, I've been working mostly within refugee and immigrant communities in Portland, Oregon, and I specialize in teaching literacy to adults who've never had access to education, which is a very small niche, but it's still a reality. And therefore, my life has been immersed in communities uh, of people who tend to be on the margins of American society. And so that's kind of where I'm at. I'm in this amazing neighborhood on the outskirts of Portland, where it's very diverse, especially for uh, the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) Um, And yeah, just just trying to be a good neighbor. Um, You know, right now, as we're recording this, we're like three or four weeks into this global pandemic. And so that uh, has really drastically changed my life. I'm sort of a huge neighborhood busybody. Uh, I'm very involved (laughs) in things and having to stay at home. I, I feel like this is a really interesting opportunity for me. I almost feel like, um, cloistered. Like I've been wanting to read about nuns and monks and like, (laughs) how do they maintain this connection to God when a, a part of my story has really connecting to God through the work of everyday life and being in community with my neighbors. And now, uh, we're in this season where we can't do that. So I, I don't have all the answers. I'm actually sort of today in a place of really wanting to ask God, like, what do we do in this time of being at home? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like forced solitude, right? Solitude is a spiritual practice and we're all being forced to practice. Oh, my gosh. But the thing is, we do have access to like Twitter and Netflix. And so (laughs) there's ways to clutter up this forced solitude. And I'm really trying to be like, I am sad. I'm so sad that I cannot sit in my neighbor's apartment right now, you know, for three hours and just 
shoot the breeze and the people I'm in relationship with, it really does take a long time to really get to what's really going on. And, and, mm. and, uh, we don't interact over technology much. So really my life has, has changed drastically and just saying, okay, maybe it's time to just kind of sit quietly with God for three hours. I'm not saying I'm doing that. I'm, <laughs> I've not done that yet, but as this continues to go longer, it just, it is making me think what, what is this time going to reveal in myself and how can it be actually fruitful for the yeah. long run? I'm really fascinated by how, by what we're going to see come out of it. So later this year, um, there will be projects that people started or maybe reflections that people like ch- they realized I need to change my life and we'll see things yeah. um, change. That'll be very interesting to, to see. This is, yeah. you know, it happens. Pandemics happen historically, but we haven't lived through one. So it's kind of interesting to, see what that'll do. Oh yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. You're in Portland now, but you didn't grow up there. Did you? No, I kind of grew up all over the place. My dad was a pastor of mostly small churches and we would move like every two to four years, kind of mostly in the Western part of the U S so, but places like Wyoming, Alaska, Northern California, central Oregon. And I've now lived in Portland longer than I lived anywhere else. So I kind of okay. consider it home. That's your, that's your place. Yeah. So pastor's kid. So you, uh, you grew up in a Christian family. Mm-hmm. And so what was that like for you? Yeah. I mean, I used to joke, I think about being raised fundamentalist Christian because I'm like, we actually weren't that fundamentalist because we were allowed to wear pants and cut <laughs> okay. our hair, you know, because I knew all those kinds of communities too. But yeah, the farther out, you're like, I'm like, wow, I, but I really was raised in a very sheltered um, way. I, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it, but I was homeschooled up until 11th grade uh, because of like a fear of public schools. I, um, yeah, it was baptized when I was six and most of my relationships were within the church and I only interacted with Christians. And, and so, yeah, now that I have kids of my own, it is interesting to be like, yeah, we, we really were kept pretty separate mm. from the world for a very, very long time. And it's, and it's most ways my childhood was amazing. Uh, but I am making a few different choices with my own kids. Like they attend our local public school, um, which is like rated one of the lowest in all of Oregon, but what actually is going on there, it's this amazing place of community mm-hmm. and mutual caring and sharing. And I'm able to have conversations with my kids about our faith in this very diverse setting. Um, and actually, my parents now live 10 minutes away from me. And my mom started working at our public school as a oh, reading wow. tutor. And now she's just like, I feel God's <laughs> love for this place. And I, you know, so it's, it's really interesting to see that trajectory from a public school as a place of evil um to now my mom investing in it and uh loving it so yeah. it's it's been a really fun journey it's interesting how uh contact with others changes your perception of them yes yeah. absolutely right absolutely uh well that's interesting okay so how did your faith did you feel like your faith ever became your own i'm sure it did at some point so how did that what was that journey like for you yeah i i have you know i went to bible college and i wanted to be a missionary from age six. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to be a missionary was that I was a very intense child, an intense (laughs) female in a denomination where women were not 
allowed to be in positions of authority, except uh, you could be a missionary overseas, right? And so if you're like a strong, independent person and you're female, that's kind of where you went. And so that is something I wanted. And also, you know, missionaries are like the cream of the crop, right? Yeah, right <laughs> Everybody thought right. they were amazing. And pa- so, If you're a pastor or a missionary, you are in. Right. And so like, there's definitely a part of me that thought, I want to be the best, you know, if, if there's a hierarchy in God's eyes that I want to be at the very top and, you know, terribly mixed motives. I do really love other cultures and um, I really wanted to be helpful in the world. And so those are also some, some reasons why, but in Bible college uh, to be a missionary, we obviously took a lot of classes about the Bible. And I do remember reading the gospels and just being really struck with, Jesus always talking about this thing called the kingdom of God. And I just could not wrap my head around it. And I couldn't understand what that meant. And my dad and my professors, they always said the same thing. They said, the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign in your life. I'm like, okay, but what does that mean? Because everybody I knew was Christian and everybody said that. And we didn't seem that different from everybody else to be perfectly honest. And so I just had this sense of, this is how it started, my, my faith becoming my own, is I had this sense that I didn't fundamentally understand the main thing that Jesus talked about, and that terrified me, because everybody <laughs> else around me acted like they knew what it meant, and I just thought, I am totally missing something here. And when I read the Gospels in college, really paid attention to them, you know, the, the people I most saw myself represented in were the religious people who were trying to do good, trying to be the best followers of Yahweh possible. And then when Jesus would talk to them, they would react in really intense ways, usually um, finding his message very offensive. And so I think that also started my journey being like locating myself in my social political, you know, situation and seeing where I would be in the gospels. And I was usually someone coming from a community of some power, some religious authority, and and having a really hard time understanding Jesus as good news. And uh, after I started working with recently resettled refugees in Portland, I was really able to start to experience how hard the world was for people who weren't just like me. Yeah. Um. And so, so these refugees in particular, again, were non-literate. They were Muslim. You know, they had black skin in a city where there's mostly white people. Um, they were very poor, uh, experienced trauma and like life in Portland was so hard for them. I think before I had this idea that when people come to America, you know, it's just like, yay, we're so glad we're here. And we escaped the horrible things that happened to us. Um, but they still had to like fight really hard to survive every single day. And now they just were doing it as an absolute minority in like every way possible. And so, I really started to experience like how my city of Portland could be bad news for people. And then as I tried to convert them using the tools I was learning in Bible college, like we'll show the Jesus film and we'll go through the Romans road. And it just had zero impact on their life. (laughs) And they were sort of like, okay, can you please help us figure out how to get groceries? Uh, You know, it, it really started to open my eyes. Like, wow, I had this really simplistic idea of, you share the gospel, which is like this intellectual assent to this prayer. Um, and if you say no, then like, I should probably go and find other people who will say yes. But instead, I really felt like God was saying, I want you to stay. Yeah. Um, they said no, 
I was a total failure. And then I really felt the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to keep coming back. And I did that for years and years, really became involved in this community. And after a few years of that, when I came back and read the Gospels, I was really able to experience what Jesus talked about as being good news for my neighbors. Yeah. And that really opened my eyes to this idea of who the Bible is originally written for, right? And the communities to who it's written for, which are people who are poor and who have been oppressed and who experience physical ailments and who have been in captivity. And I think that really made my faith my own. Just I, I believe in a God as evidence in Jesus, who is good news for people who have suffered the most on earth. And that's just something I have clung to as I've been in relationship with these communities, because it's really easy to get overwhelmed. And I think maybe now that we're in this time of a pandemic, right? All of us are starting to have to grapple with this. Like, yeah. do we believe in a God that if we just pray the right prayer, we won't get sick, right? Do we believe in that kind of God? <laughs> do we believe in a God who is present and with us even as we are all suffering? Yeah, it just really raises these these questions oh, that uh, I sort of had to start to think about I would say about, yeah, 14 years ago. Oh, interesting. Okay. Was there a story? So I'm thinking about when you were in Bible college and you're wrestling with this, because that sounds like a really formative time for you. Yeah. Was there a story about Jesus that haunted you or one that you wrestled with most? I I think like looking back in Bible college, it really was that phrase, the kingdom of God. I will say now, you know, things jump out to me all the time, um, but I, as a good little evangelical, you know, I heard about the cross all the time. And Mm -hmm. so like Good Friday was like one of my least favorite days, which sounds terrible (laughs) to say, but just because it was all about, um, you know, my personal sin, nailing Jesus to the cross and like everybody needed to cry a bunch. It's about how bad you feel. Yes. And and I, I don't even think, I think that's like a part of, of, what was going on at the cross, but that's like the only part that was focused on. And it's really hard when you're a kid to be like, I don't quite understand why it was me who did it. Right. Okay. I, okay. I do feel really bad. And, um, and then if you look at the gospels, you know, there's a lot of stories of people trying to kill Jesus. It wasn't that one time, right. (laughs) Where people got so mad that they tried to kill him. In fact, the religious leaders and people who actually showed up to the synagogue to hear the word of God, who are good, observant, religious folks, they tried to kill Jesus multiple times. So I think those stories also started to stand out to me, right? Like what's going on here that people would find Jesus's message so upsetting to their lives that they would want to kill him. And it usually revolved around Jesus saying, God is working in these communities that you would love to see vanquished from the earth. (laughs) You know, it's basically Jesus saying the Gentiles, like when Jesus elevates people like Naaman the Syrian or the widow Zarephath and says like, you know, in the time of the prophets, there's tons of Israelites in need. And instead God worked for through these people, these people who oppressed you were part of the oppressive group. So I think stories like that, you know, I heard so much about the good news of Jesus growing up and I just started to be like, Jesus really, he felt like bad news to some people yeah. in the gospels. Yeah. And, and what does that mean for me? Um, why should I assume that he is good news? And so I think that started this tension of me wanting to understand it, Am I really willing to take Jesus seriously? And what would that look like for my life? Would it feel like a kind of death of sorts 
if Jesus is asking me to truly put other people above my own self. Does that make sense? I wanted it to be so concrete because I think that's what I was always looking for as a teenager. It's like, how does this change the way we live our life? Like, I know we'll get into heaven, but what does this mean for today? Because that's what Jesus talked about all the time in his life and his miracles and, and what he did. He was very... He was very involved in his community, his life, and very involved in kind of pointing out to people who they have excluded from being in relationship with. So I I started to say, that's what I want to start focusing on in my actual life. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. I had very similar questions as a teenager. Like, I, what, why, my question was, how do we change, right? What, how do we, if the gospel is for change, we always talk about it, but I don't see any of it happening. And so very similar kinds of questions, like what is, what is actually here? I found a lot of that in Dallas Willard and some of his work, those mm. kinds of things, kingdom of God too. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. So it sounds like you, you always had these sort of questions. You're wrestling with your faith just a little bit. You believed, but then maybe the tradition that you were being given, you were skeptical of. And, and not skeptical, but I, I think I saw the limitations of it. Mm. And so, you know, this is a little bit of a, a tricky story to tell because I was wanting to be a missionary and I was sort of being told I have, you, you know, this is what I think is so funny when I'm 19 years old at yeah. Bible college, right. Being told that I know everything there is to know about God <laughs> and should go out and um, convert people to be just like me, right? There's like, there's not very much humility in that. And um, there's a sense of, I think, American exceptionalism that's in there. There's a sense of triumphalism where, of course, we're going to be victorious because we have the key to the truth about God in Jesus Christ. And um, again, having those experiences of using the tools I was given, presenting it to these communities and, and recognizing there's just so many barriers uh, to these communities converting in the ways that I had been told was, was, was going to happen. And then recognizing, Oh my gosh, is my faith bigger than this? Like they need to say one thing and then they're in, is my faith bigger than just this simple kind of transaction? And what is God asking me to do now that I've been introduced to these communities? And so I really had to struggle with what it means to fail and what it means to um, not be someone who comes in saying, I know everything about God. Let me give it to you. But instead, the more time I spent with my neighbors, this was like so hard for me to talk about, but I experienced the love of God in those spaces. And my personal background did not give me a framework for that. I think in scriptures, we see a framework for that, you know, in so many people's testimonies, we see this framework, but I personally was not given one. I was supposed to bring God with me. Instead, I discovered a God who is present and at work in the world. And I just get to be one tiny Mm -hmm. piece of that work. And I'm so glad, right. In in retrospect, it's like, thank goodness the Holy spirit is working and it's not up to me. (laughs) Yeah. That's a lot of pressure, I feel like, uh, to put on people. Well, okay, so it goes back to humility for sure. I think that's that's a huge thing. But you're right. That's oh, so interesting. Okay, I've got a lot of problems with some of that as well. The the whole idea of if I don't tell everybody, then, you know, I've somehow failed and God's going to judge me for all that, right? 
It's uh, it's a burden. It's hard. It's, it is. Yeah. It's a definite burden. Yeah. I'm curious. You mentioned earlier you felt like the Holy Spirit was asking you to stay with yes. with these people. Mm-hmm. What was your relationship to the Holy Spirit, and how how did you how did that develop in your life? Because my my experience with uh, certainly more let's say fundamentalist sort of trending that direction, right? Um, is that the Holy Spirit generally is not, it's believed in, but not really experienced, right? So how did that become to be part of your experience? Yeah, um, my dad was pretty much just independent Christian church. Okay. Uh, evangelical pastor, but my mom got really into the charismatic movement and I've ah. done some research on it and it is a really fascinating trend or whatever you want to call it within American evangelicalism in particular. And there's some parallels to groups, you know, finding avenues of power, avenues of expression in the charismatic. So my mom, you know, raised her kids with an awareness of it. I never quite understood. Again, I, I just didn't understand what was going on all the time with these. And I always wondered like, well, what's the point? What's the point of people who fall down laughing? What's What's the point of all of this? And, um, you know, I actually ended up, this is like so silly. I ended up going to a Pentecostal Bible college and I didn't know it was a Pentecostal Bible college. Um, the first one I went to and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like that person speaks in tongues. And so does that person. So my gosh, like everybody does, but I did it. And people would like pray for me every other weekend. Um, and I was just so stubborn. I was like, if God's going to do this, it needs to be God. And so like, I refuse to practice speaking in tongues and, you know, all the chapels were like, everybody would like be slain in the spirit and fall down. I would just be like the only one left standing. And I was just like, I'm not doing this. I'm not, <laughs> you know? And so I have a really stubborn streak within me, but I also now, the older I get, the, the more I can see, I, I do think God understands that we're all so different and that the Holy Spirit works in different ways in people's lives. And when I have heard people share their testimonies, I think what I most relate to are people who are like, I just feel like God is constantly dragging me into these things I don't want to do. <laughs> and like, I don't need to spend a lot of time in prayer asking God, what should I do with my life? Because I feel this constant hounding of God saying like, you need to forgive this person that you really hate. And I hear God saying, you need to really love this person that you, you just want to ignore at all costs. And so uh, that's like more my relationship with the Holy Spirit is this, this drive and this, it, it doesn't come from within me. It's something from beyond that is calling me to love other people and to position my life in a way that you know, doesn't make it necessarily easier. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And actually the more you follow God, right. The more it's an invitation to step into the reality of the world as it truly is. Like if you look at the prophets, right. In the old Testament, well, they were some miserable people, weren't they? <laughs> but they were very close to God and they were part of what God was asking them to do was to see the world as it was and to name it and to invite the people of God to be a part of bringing Shalom to these unjust realities. And so, yeah, I I think it's interesting. Like that has been how I've seen the Holy Spirit at work in my life saying, stop just thinking about yourself and let's try and expand your eyes. I guess some people say like, you know, the eyes of your heart, open the eyes of your heart to what's going on around you. So it's a very outward focused thing. And yeah, this sense of like, I would not be doing this if it wasn't for God, like propelling me to do this. Yeah. So it sounds like, 
almost a um i mean you certainly had some charismatic influences or so, so some influences where you yeah. were like okay uh you know the holy spirit was part of your not just awareness but also experience yeah um but you're also just sort of always listening and always trying to is there an example of a, of something that you've had to do that um that like can you tell us a story about when god's asked you to do something that you were like i don't don't want to do that Oh, that's a good question. I think that I, so in the book, The Myth of the American Dream, I really did want to spend some time thinking about these values that sort of shape our lives if we grew up in a dominant culture in America. And I sort of thought of these values of affluence, autonomy, safety, and power. And um, in the book, I talk about, you know, living in this neighborhood with refugee and immigrant communities and uh, when my daughter reached school age, you know, I Googled our local school, which I already mentioned is like one of the lowest rated in the whole state. And I, and I saw that ranking and just how low it was. And it was like rated F and like this big red, oh, wow. you know, all this stuff. And uh, just the sense of panic that came up within me. And I'd been inside that school. I knew a bunch of families at that school. Um, but I think it was this cultural baggage stuff of, I need the best for my kid. Am I going to fail my kid? Am I doing something wrong? I'm so scared that I'm going to, you know, put my own kid behind in this rat race that we call the world. Um, you know, and also just normal stuff like my child is so precious and wonderful and I can't, you know, (laughs) I can't imagine them being a part of this chaotic school environment. And so, you know, I really felt this struggle between my culture just wanting me to freak out and leave and find a better option because I have the privilege to do so. And really this underlying sense of calm. uh, And I would say this is, you know, possibly from the Holy Spirit saying, it's going to be okay. You're all being this together. Just take it one year at a time. Like, let's just see what it's like to be a part of this community. And you know, I've spent so many years of my life like trying to build community and moving into these low-income apartments and, and doing all this stuff. And having my daughter go to the school was like the fastest and easiest way I've ever had of just like instantaneous neighboring and instantaneous relationship building. And mm. we walk to school every day. We see so many people. The school is truly the lifeline of our neighborhood because we don't have any parks. We don't have any community centers. Um we have like zero, almost zero public places people can gather. And so the school is so important to our community and what I would miss out if I let that fear, you know, drive my decisions. And I think what's so sobering is like, I had been planning to send my daughter there. I had all these values of community. And then Mm. in an instant looking at this rating system, which the rating system was designed to further segregation, you know, so like it's doing (laughs) its job. Um, it, it, I think that's what really stands out to me is like, you can do all this work of trying to love your neighbor and cultural influences and values can just come in like that and kind of override what you're trying to do as far as uh, being obedient to God. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's one of those hard, those hard things because we're just so ingrained in us, right? It's so, so deeply held. Interesting. Okay. Well, have you ever had a dark night of the soul or a time when you felt like God was far away? Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm always in one. <laughs> All the time. Has anybody else ever said that? Uh, no. You know, I've, <laughs> I've had people say no, which I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, like, call me call me back after you've had yours. <laughs> right, right. What, what does that mean? What yeah. does that mean? Like wrestling with God? 
Yeah, I all think the time. I'd be interested to, you know, you can tell me what you think about this whole spiritual formation journey because I did grow up hearing all of those testimonies that had such a nice linear. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so my mom talked a lot about the dark night of the soul and, you know, having one. And now I'm just like, oh my gosh, I, I feel like I am kind of in one right now because of this global pandemic. And my, my whole life mm. has been about my neighbors and neighboring and all that. And I always thought if something bad happens, I'm going to be so happy. I'm in my neighborhood with these really resilient communities. It's going to be amazing. And now I'm like, I can't go visit them. This never once crossed my mind that this could happen. So I'm alone in my house with my two yeah. kids and my husband. It's challenging your sense of community. <laughs> oh my gosh. And my sense of vocation and my sense of uh, what I do to have God be proud of me. You know, it's like all this stuff is really coming to a head. And so I don't view it as this dark night of the soul where I'm despondent, but I view it as a time where I'm acutely aware of the suffering of the world and I'm powerless to do anything about it. And so that's usually how my dark nights come about. And I have to say, do I trust God? Do I trust that Uh, God is good? Do I trust that God is present? Do I, you know, and, uh, but I don't view it as an absence of God's presence, which I know that's traditionally how the dark night of the soul has been kind of, categorize i think my relationship has always been um now that i am free to be honest with god i don't feel mm. god's absence necessarily wow. but i do feel like what the heck I, I i feel extremely upset alone i know there's people suffering i don't know how to help them and so i guess that's kind of where i am right now i i don't know if like psychologically i'm kind of on that cusp of like between the first and second half of life you know i think like people like richard Rohr are really into talking about that yeah. and so i'm 36 you know I'm, I'm kind of reaching the tail end of uh you know all the coping mechanisms i've used to feel good about myself and doing work in the world are starting to uh not be enough anymore and so now really entering into that second phase of life where you have to say like i need spiritual disciplines in order to keep going this is Strong arming yourself through it isn't going to work. And now really doesn't work because I'm at home. I can't do any of these things. Um, So how do I, you know, like I was saying a little bit before, it's like, how do I utilize this time to actually strengthen my relationship with God? Um, Well, well, not entering into this kind of spirituality that says I'm not responsible for anybody. Cause I think that's always been my fear, right? Like some of the most pious people in my life are like, God's in control. I'm like, okay, but I also think God's inviting us into bringing shalom into the world. And I don't know about you, but my neighborhood oh, yeah. is suffering right now. And so those, I, I feel that tension of knowing God wants us to be a part of the work in the world and, and recognizing that when we can't do anything, God is still in control and God still is good. One thing that you said that really stood out to me is now that I feel free to be honest with God, Yes, right? That I don't feel so alone. Uh, did that develop over time? Yes, because me and my husband talk sometimes about what it was like to be in youth group growing up and it would be like a public prayer time. And like, I don't know if you got intense anxiety because you had to pray a really good prayer, right? In front of everybody and like impress them and be really spiritual and oh, all man. that stuff. Yeah, it was like a particular kind of anxiety, oh, I guess. One time and, uh, I forgot somebody's name. I prayed the <gasps> wrong name. That was the worst. Can oh my gosh, like sometimes you had to hold hands and your hands were all sweaty and oh, you're gosh. trying to like pray this good prayer and, you know, a lot of anxiety. And, and me and my husband, we've been doing these Tuesday night prayer groups for like 
the past, I don't know, eight years now that we, that we started uh, in a community with Minneapolis kind of showed us about it. And, and now like inviting people in Portland to like come to a prayer night, they're just like, Oh my gosh, that sounds terrifying. Like (laughs) the people who love God and they're people who, you know, but it just brings back all this stuff. But now I'm like, oh my gosh, when you pray, you just get to be really honest with God. It feels so great. It just like takes this burden off my shoulders and I can just be like, I don't understand. God, you're the one who told me that you want the world (laughs) to be awesome and it's not awesome. And so I'm really mad at you. And it just, I I, I don't know. My husband disagrees with me, but I think the only true prayers are honest prayers because otherwise you're putting up this wall between you and God, yeah. you can't really connect. And my husband's like, anybody who's praying is praying. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't make rules about that. And I understand that. I'm just saying for myself, it's not worth praying if I can't be honest. Amen. Amen. I see his point, but, uh, but yeah, that's a really good, really good idea. Is, um, do you have a favorite prophet? Um, I mean, Jeremiah is kind of amazing. Yeah. Right. But they're all, they all terrify me in a way. So I don't spend like tons of time (laughs) dwelling on them. They are super honest. So that's really incredible. And then I don't know if you've ever read um, Prophetic Lament by Sung Cheng Ra. He -hmm. kind of unpacks a book of Lamentations and it's incredible. Like I would recommend that book for anybody because it really shows how, a lament is a prayer of faith in a God who's listening. And that has been so formative for me, right? Like we get to lament to God. We get to say, we hate this. We're mad at you. Everything sucks because we, we actually believe God's listening. Yeah. And I think maybe growing up, you know, we only sang songs in church that praise God, which is fine. That's an element of Christian worship and discipleship, but the Bible is not, full of praise songs, <laughs> you know, like I think it's 30% lament. It's like 10% wow. God kill our enemies, please right now. And you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a wild portrayal of humans being honest with God. I think. Yeah. I have a, a friend who used to be our pastor here and he always wanted to start a, uh, like a t-shirt company called uh, imprecatory. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Take some of those like songs we don't want to think about, like so terrifying. dash their babies' heads on the rocks, right? Like oh my gosh. put that on a coffee cup and let's see what happens. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah. It's it's in there. It is in there. And then we have yeah. to reckon with that. And we have to yeah. we have to the, it gives us permission, like, I think like you said, to be honest with the Lord about, hey, this is how we're feeling and to be yeah. even angry with him. Yeah. Um, interesting. Well, that's good. Yeah. I, I just, I thought that was interesting because I, I hear, I hear that prophetic coming, coming out. Um, I, so for the record, my favorite one is Habakkuk. That's my, really. I love his, his, uh, his interaction with God. Cause he goes back and mm. forth and God doesn't say, Hey, why are you questioning me? He says, Oh, well, this is what I'm going to do about all that injustice that you see. And then Habakkuk goes, wait, that sucks. I don't like the Babylonians either. Right. Like that's right. not cool. And then God responds again, and um, that's where we get the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk says, mm-hmm. I'm going to sit down, and I'm just going to wait and hear, see what you have to say. And God says, oh, that's the righteous will live by faith. That's what it means. So a lot of a lot of times I like to define faith as sometimes it's just waiting. Mm. Yeah. Okay, you're making me want to go back and reread that. It's fantastic. And it ends with one of the most beautiful psalms nobody knows. So 
It's it's really good. <laughs> Let's put that on a T-shirt instead of right imprecatory right. psalms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, well, that's that's really fascinating. Okay, so you spent some time with these refugee communities, and then but you eventually started writing. So was that always mm-hmm. something that you wanted to do, or how did you get into that? No, it's a really interesting story actually because. I was such a doer and, you know, definitely in that sort of missionary do-gooder place of life. I went to school and got a degree in teaching English and I moved into these low-income apartments with all these refugee families. I did homework clubs and after-school activities and English classes and just go, go, go. And I was working like three jobs. And then I had my first child and it ended up being like a traumatic pregnancy. She was born two months early and we both almost died. It was like horrible. She had to be in the hospital for a while. And then when we got home, the doctor was like, you can't go anywhere. She's immune compromised. She's four pounds. You can't do anything. And so I did just like stop cold Turkey. And again, I still thought I had two more months to like wrap up all this stuff, you know, and I was just stuck inside my little apartment and, uh, you know, kind of like where I'm at now. (laughs) Um, and I was really forced to sort of begin to think through my experiences of life with my neighbors and kind of trying to integrate what I believed about God. And that's when I started writing and it's just become something that I like to do. I, first of all, I write to help myself understand how I'm feeling because it still puts me in touch with my emotions. I have a hard time. Otherwise I just want to do, 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 do. And so writing really helps me understand and pay better attention to my life. So I think like a good creative writer, that's what they do. They're just trying to pay attention to the world around them. And so kind of leaning more into that and less didactic, this is what other people should do. But I have really do slip into that. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I try, you know, I, I do write like freelance articles, but in my books, I try and do a little bit more of an essay format just to give space for other people's experiences And to just be a little bit more honest of, I'm just trying to figure stuff out here um, and I'm trying to pay attention and and this is what I see. And so it's been a, I would say it's been a spiritual discipline for me is writing. Mm. It's very connected to me having a conversation with God and people around me. But my books are primarily focused at, you know, writing to the community I came out of. So I would say white American Christians. It's sort of me trying to sort of bridge some of like what I was told growing up and and uh, what I've seen in the world. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, so the myth of the American dream. Okay, mm-hmm. so I said earlier you you're a bit of a you got a talent for provocative titles. That's uh, that's I a do toughie. Love intense things. I do. <laughs> that's good. Do you drink bold coffee? Also, is that no? I oh, like a right. light roast, oh, but okay. like made strong. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. <laughs> Curious, uh, <laughs> myth of the American dream. So, where did you where did you get that? I don't know. And I, you know, it was like my working title, and I was like, "There's got to already be a book called that." And then there yeah. wasn't. Wow. So, <laughs> I just thought, "There's no way." But you know, what is it? What does it mean that the American dream is a myth? I think, like the way I describe it, is if. So for me, the myth of the American dream is like a a double-edged sword. So Mm -hmm. on one hand, there is this global myth, although I think it's taken a hit, um, about America being this place of opportunity. Anybody who works hard enough can make it, you know, in the land of the free and the home of the brave. The problem is we have really 
uh, I don't know if I could say Byzantine. We we have really chaotic and oppressive immigration policies uh, that punish certain groups of people more than others. Um, You know, we have centuries of systematic inequality that have been, you know, put into everything from like mortgage contracts to school segregation. Uh, You know, we don't have an equal playing field. Um, But if you're someone who comes from like, say, a dominant culture perspective, you're going to look at it and be like, everything's going fine for me. I think the American dream is real. I think it must work because I work pretty hard and I'm making it. So it baptizes your experience as being true and normative. And then it puts the burden on people who aren't necessarily making it. And you are able to judge them individually and say, there must be something wrong with them. They're not working hard enough because this worked out for me just fine. And so for me, the the myth of the American dream is if you pay attention to marginalized communities, you will see it's a myth. You will see it doesn't work for everybody. And I guess my question is, if it doesn't work for anybody, is it actually good? And, you know, I don't think it is. Right. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> well, those are those are great questions. I am glad that you're asking them. I think, um, you know, I so I grew up in Iowa, right? So I was very much like Oregon in the sense that it's it's one of the top five whitest places in the country, right? Um, and never thought that racism was a real thing. Right or that there were that some of these things that you're describing actually existed, um, you know, and we would say things like, "Well, if they just work, everybody can work hard, right?" And right. until you understand that that's just not true, it's physically not true, um, and that there not everybody has access to even the things you take for granted, right? Um, then you can't you can't get it. It's really hard to get that. So. Um, I appreciate that. Why? Uh, why uh, affluence, autonomy, safety, and power? I mean, those are that's an interesting collection of things. Yeah, it's funny. It it kind of stems from I was playing around with uh, the passage in Luke four where Jesus announces his ministry. It's kind of a mm-hmm. famous passage. Jesus is reading from the scroll of Isaiah fifty eight, and you know Jesus. Uh, reads this passage which says the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Uh, I think he says like to set at liberty those who are in prison to restore sight to the blind and um, I think set the oppressed free. And one day I was just like, okay, so that's where Jesus said he was going to be working in the world. And I think Jesus is still working in the world. Uh, Those are really interesting places, like the poor, um, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. And I just thought, like, what are the opposite of those places? And so, you know, what's the opposite of the poor? It's rich. And yeah, you know, so I just went through what's the opposite of captive is people who have freedom or autonomy. And, you know, the one about blindness uh, is kind of interesting. I thought maybe like wellness, like this cultural idol of wellness or safety. And then, you know, the opposite of the oppressed would be an oppressor or somebody who has power. And so when I thought about those four values, affluence, autonomy, safety, and power, I just thought, oh my gosh, like everything in my culture, including the church, has has told me to pursue those values as my God-given right. Uh, And what does it mean that Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to be over here, (laughs) like heading in the opposite direction. And again, that question of if I'm somebody who says they believe Jesus is Christ, Mm 
uh, am I going to take this seriously? And then coupled with my relationships with these communities that have really come from those places that Jesus talked about, I would say refugees really embody those categories, you know, really saying like Jesus says he's good news to them. Therefore, I think we as Christians should be good news for those communities. How can we be orienting our life in those directions? And that's kind of where it all sprang up from. Oh, awesome. Um, Yeah. I have a friend who says, if your gospel isn't good news for the poor, it's not the gospel. Yes. (laughs) But we, we really spiritualize that. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. but you know, one of the things that's so fascinating is Bible is obsessed with economics, like just obsessed yeah. talking about money, wealth, possessions, what you should be doing with all that stuff. And, uh, growing up and even in Bible college, just really the emphasis being on idolatry and like people bowing down to a wooden carved statue. And of course that did the old Testament. That's like a really huge sign that the people have turned away from God. But in so many instances, when the prophets are telling the people of God, like you've really forgotten God, uh, the first sign is not they're bowing down to idols. The first sign is that they've forgotten the poor and they've forgotten to take care of the widows and the foreigners. They started becoming really selfish. And then uh, eventually they get to the place where they're bowing down to idols. And so again, it's really important to think about the good news has to actually impact people's life and their economic situation. And it's not just about the spiritual. It's all intertwined because God cares about our lives. Like he cares about our present. Yeah. What do you hope this book communicates to people? What do you hope people get from it? Let's say somebody who's in a, a <laughs> dominant, you know, uh, culture reads it. What do you hope they, they hear? Yeah, I think I really am on a journey of trying to pay attention. And so I'd like to invite other people to pay attention to the inequality of our world. And I think that, you know, with this global pandemic, it really is exposing what's kind of been there all along for maybe even a wider group of people. And so it's it's going to be an interesting time for all of us to really lean to, into how can we pay attention to inequality? How can we be curious about our own role in both benefiting from these unjust systems and being curious about where God might want us to be agents of shalom, right? Mm-hmm. Shalom is this beautiful theme in scripture over 550 times we see that word and that shalom is what god's dream for the world is it's where everyone flourishes and just like you were saying about it's not good news if it isn't good news for the poor the bible this is what randy woodley says he says you know you know if a community is flourishing if it's experiencing shalom when like the poorest and most marginalized people in it are flourishing and until that happens you're not actually you don't actually have shalom you don't actually have god's dream for the world so that would be my goal is inviting Christians into paying attention, into curiosity and to wanting and desiring shalom and wanting to be a part of that. Um, and right now is such a fascinating time. So like my governor, Kate Brown in Oregon, she recently said that, uh, you know, this pandemic is, it's not exposing the cracks in the system. It's exposing the canyons in the system. Wow. And I think that's something we're all going to have to start to grapple with even more. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've we've got to be aware that they're there, and um, you know, we're God's calling us to fix them. Sometimes it's not enough to just pray that God will fix them. We have to go out and do it. And do it's it an interesting tension, right? Yeah, it because is. We can't fix it all. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're not God, but yeah, I think 
I, I've been a part of communities of people of faith who, and they talk a lot about being contemplative activists and you can't be an mm. activist without being in relationship with God, without being connected to the source of our desires. And um, you also can't just be a contemplative all the time. You have to right. go out and be an activist too and, yeah. and trying to lean into that. Man, I love that. Okay. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, Danielle. I really appreciate you sharing a little bit of your story. Friends, the book is called The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. You can get it wherever you get good books. It comes out. It'll be out by the time this is out, so it's good. Um, Danielle, anything you want to leave us with? Well, I guess I kind of want to know, how are you doing right now? It is an intense <laughs> oh, time. That's great. Uh, we're doing okay. You know what? So we're about three weeks in, um, and... We have, for the most part, it's a, it's a good thing. Kids, my boys already have, we have three boys. They go to a school. It's been, okay, this is really tough, but they actually, we had a school shooting at our school last year on May 7th. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And so their last year ended like abruptly anyway. Mm. Um, but their school is a STEM school. And so they already do, when we have snow delays, they already do a, a virtual day. So they were kind of used to that. Uh, my my poor daughter, she's 18. She's a <gasps> senior and she's going to, oh, she's no. losing just everything that she was oh, planning no. for. So she's devastated. Um, for the most part, we're okay. But yesterday, everything just blew up <laughs> with yeah. all the emotions and everything. So yeah. um, we're getting there. We're getting there. But it's, yeah. you know, just like everybody, it's one thing at a time and contemplating what's next. And I'm working online. That's what I do. And I enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. So that's it. Thank you for asking. That's good. Yeah. Um, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. I love what you do on Twitter, by the way. I'm always probably liking your post too much, but um, I try to try to interact, and it's always always entertaining. Oh, <laughs> I am a little spicy on there sometimes. That's fantastic. I like it. Uh, very good. Well, you, people can find you at your website. I think is dlmayfield.com, right? Mm -hmm. And again, Twitter. I would totally recommend. Must follow. And uh, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. 